0: Turn now, O God of hosts, look down from heaven. Behold and tend this vine. Preserve what your right hand has planted. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus is our unexpected Savior. Jesus is both our judge and our advocate. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, Studio Ghibli, but I'm a big fan. So I'm going to tell you about this for a little bit. Maybe your kids have seen this or maybe your grandkids. If not, go home and rent a bunch and watch them with your kids and grandkids. So Studio Ghibli is an animation studio out of Japan. Um, by uh, the director and chief animator, Miyazaki, who keeps retiring and then keeps coming out of retirement and making a new one because he's so abundantly creative. Now in the United States and kind of in our Western encounter with animation, we tend to encounter it as kind of um, for kids or something. Even say like Disney is beautifully well put together as it is, we consider it for kids. some Studio Ghibli is okay for kids. You probably want to check the age range before you watch it because they can kind of get a little violent at times. But the main thing is that this Japanese animation is so beautiful. It's like a work of art being set in motion. It's like a watercolor or something being brought to life and that's part of what draws you into the movie, and there's some themes in these Miyazaki films that are amazing. One is that it almost always has to do with the environment, like environmental degradation. This is post-World War II Japan, and so um, he has this huge concern for justice, especially like earth justice, environmental justice. Some of them even explicitly have, or or very clearly have, a kind of post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war kind of vibe to it that they're fighting with. Another thing that's great about it, just keep this in mind for your kids and grandkids, is that they often have a strong female lead. Sometimes a strong female lead is a kid, which is really fun. Um, because again, we're sometimes not used to that in our culture, so that makes them really unique. But finally, and now I'm getting at the reason why I'm grabbing this as an illustration, is that they have they don't have white hats and black hats. It's very rarely really clear who the good guy and the bad guy is in the film. And at the beginning, the person that you're pretty sure is the bad guy or the bad woman, as the case may be, it pretty much becomes clear by about halfway through the film that it's not that clear cut. And that there's actually something maybe good or even redeemable about this character, and I don't want to give away any endings, so I'm not gonna give them away explicitly, but they almost always end with some kind of interesting reconciliation or transformation of the situation where no one has to lose for everybody to win. Can you tell I'm a big fan of this? I'm a big fan of this. So I think of one in particular. There's one called Princess Mononoke, y'all can write this down. And the person that you're pretty sure is a bad guy, or in this case, a bad woman, Turns out that she's doing what seems to be the bad things that she's doing because she's helping out oppressed women, especially women that are stuck in brothels. She's taking them out to this big fortress she's built and she's sustaining it because she's turned the fortress into a firearms factory and she's destroying the whole forest around her so that she can keep making firearms to sell and to protect these women. But the god of the forest is mad about it So she's figured out that the best thing she can do is hire some hunters to go and hunt and kill the god of the forest. There's your setup. (laughs) So it becomes really interesting. This is something that pastors have to keep in mind. Everyone gathered here this morning is is suffering. In some way or another i know this because you're all human and everyone here is in need of awareness and understanding and pastoral sensitivity and presence and also everybody here this morning is a sinner who is in need of being called up short um, who is in need of being exhorted and called to account for our sins You and me. And so that creates a kind of paradoxical task for the pastor. So there, I've set myself up. Now we're good. Our passage this morning in the gospel is really rich and difficult to unpack. It follows the triumphal entry. So Jesus has successfully come into Jerusalem and been recognized by many, many people to be the promised Messiah. And as soon as he gets there, the leadership in the temple, Pharisees, Sadducees, and other temple leaders start challenging him. And this is the fun part, because this is where Jesus is like, you know, deflecting all of their questions and worries and concerns in that awesome Jesus way of answering questions with questions and turning things on their head, and it's super fun, so far then when, they, when, when it seems like he's put all of them in their place, that's when he delivers this parable. And it's a turning point because they perceive that it's about them. In our parable this morning, Jesus is responding to all this pressure for proof of his authority that these leaders are putting on him. And he says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard Put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. So far, one of the ways that we can read this parable and the way that I'm going to read it this morning, remember there's lots of ways to read parables. This is the way I'm going to do it this morning. Here so far we can see the tenants as the leaders that Jesus is challenging, those who have been put in charge of tending God's vineyard. But what, or rather, who is the vineyard itself? Well, the prophet Isaiah and the psalmist this morning speak to that, and it's those passages that our Lord is echoing in his parable. Turn now, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, behold, and tend this vine. Preserve what your right hand has planted. For Isaiah the prophet, for the psalmist, the vineyard. The vine is Israel, God's people. So as Jesus responds to his questioning by the current authorities, he does so by addressing a deeper concern. Where has the kingdom of heaven gone? Why are we under Roman occupation? Why is there poverty and oppression? But worse than that, and especially for those who follow him courageously, the people of the land, Why are those who are supposed to be their shepherds, the people who are in power over them, often colluding with their oppressors? And when will it end? When the harvest time has come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized the slaves, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. With this reading of the parable, what we can see here is that God keeps sending prophets to Israel to decry corrupt leadership and to seek the harvest of his people, the good fruit that he planted them to bear. Lots of metaphors being mixed, just roll with it. That's the beautiful biblical world, lots of overlapping metaphors. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Let's find out how well this works for them. Will they get the inheritance? Let's wait and see. When we approach the parable in this way, we see Jesus as this son, the son whom the master sends. The last messenger sent in a line of prophets who is, in turn, rejected and killed by those to whom he was sent. In this parable, Jesus places the responsibility for the oppression of the people of God onto the Judean leadership, temple leaders on the Pharisees, Sadducees, and others. And so he grants them the opportunity to conclude the parable. He asks, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Oh, they'll they'll get the son's inheritance, obviously. No, that's not the answer. They know better than that. Those listening reply, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. Now, I can't help but wonder, who replied? Was it his beleaguered and oppressed disciples and other followers who had followed him there to Jerusalem for this Passover? Or was it the very members of the colluding leadership whom he was publicly challenging? Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say. Maybe both. But it does change the tone of it, doesn't it? Taking the burden of oppression off of the oppressed is good news to the ordinary downtrodden folks, but it is bad news to the current colluding leaders. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The evil tenants, the bad leaders will lose their power and authority and be replaced. The authorities therefore are not thrilled by this parable. And it is one of the very things that sets up the narrative of Christ's passion that will now unfold throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. So far, the story of this parable doesn't feel much like a Studio Ghibli film. The characters are unambiguous. The tenants are wicked. This is the name of the parable. The parable in the tradition has come to be called the wicked tenants. The good fruits of the vine are withheld. The owner has his rights denied. But here's the pastoral situation that we find ourselves in this morning. Everyone gathered here this morning is suffering and in need of pastoral sensitivity. I know because everyone here is human. And everyone gathered here this morning is also a sinner who is in need of exhortation and repentance. I know because I'm a human. So this gives this preacher a paradoxical task. Jesus addresses our problem today here as well, because as the people of God grafted onto Israel, things are not going great for us right now. Globally, we have in the news this awful situation in Israel that's arisen, and some of us even have relatives over there or have relatives that are about to head over. This is frightening and we need prayer. At the national level, think of everything that's constantly flooding through the news, but we're also ramping up to elections. And so the polarized discourse of our nation is heightening and the ability to talk and understand what's going on decreasing. How about local? Well, I don't know if it counts as a major pastoral crisis, but I know that it was difficult to get here this morning with ACL, so we'll chalk (laughs) that one up. But certainly also personal, and in ways that some of us are willing to express and some not. And then we have this parable this morning. (laughs) Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Jesus is our unexpected savior, rejected by the leaders of his own people and yet their surprising savior because Jesus is both our judge and our advocate. When we look at the biblical metaphor of judgment day, is Jesus our judge or is Jesus our lawyer? It's both, and that's the surprising paradox, isn't it? But who are we in the story? Are we the oppressed people of God, the abandoned vine that needs rescuing? Or are we the corrupt leaders, the people colluding with the corrupt powers of this world that oppress the people of God? Because the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. Parables hold a surplus of meaning. Perhaps we this morning are both the beleaguered little flock and also the leadership of God's people colluding with the oppressors of this world. You see, it's possible to suffer and to cause others to suffer at the same time. It wouldn't be the first time that our Christian faith held a paradox. And it certainly will not be the last time wherever we are in life. We find ourselves together here this morning, facing the living God together. So I propose that we let the liturgy do what we believe that it does and work. What we do here this morning together. Fulfill through the rest of our lives this week and all our days. If we're beleaguered today, worn down by the world, carrying burdens, then let us join together in prayer. At the prayers of the people, let us bring our lamentations and our petitions to a loving God whom we trust. And I invite you also to seek out the prayer and presence of one of your pastors, if you need to. Now, if we happen to be concluding with, co- colluding with oppressive authorities and systems, which may well be the case, maybe we're riding things out, playing it safe, holding on until retirement. Then let us examine our conscience, turn and repent at the confession and the absolution that we say together. And if we can't see it, perhaps we pray for the courage to see how we are not living up to the kingdom's standards how we're not measuring up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Turn now God of hosts, look down from heaven, behold, and tend this vine, preserve what your right hand has planted. You see, because I think we're all like those characters in a good studio Ghibli film here this morning. There are no clear good and bad guys in this church this morning. And that's probably good news instead. We're a bunch of really rich and interesting and ambiguous characters. We're kind of like that strange character in Princess Mononoke. We honestly and earnestly are trying to help in one way, while perhaps being blind to the way in which it's hurting someone else. So this is something we must always keep in mind and stay humble everyone gathered here is suffering me too and everyone gathered here is a sinner me too so we all share this paradoxical task of following jesus and there's no simple answer to this paradox i honestly i could that i could honestly offer from the pulpit this morning that wouldn't be presumptuous on my part so i'm going to invite us all to do the work of genuine self-examination to seek counsel and discern how each one of us can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because jesus is our unexpected savior and jesus is both our judge and our advocate and if we or rather when we are both both suffering and a cause of suffering then let us do both of these two things here this morning let us pray And let us confess, together, turn now, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, behold and tend this vine, preserve what your right hand has planted.